0: From the newsroom of The Washington Post.
1: Hi there, is the mayor in Marissa Lang with The Washington Post. Hey, it's
0: Darcy. Or to pick your brain on the truck. Hi, on.
1: my name's Jenna Johnson. I'm a-
0: this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, April 9th. Today, upheaval at the Department of Homeland Security. Pete Buttigieg argues for a religious left and the songs that get to be called country.
2: I just want to thank the president again for the tremendous opportunity to serve this country. I'm forever grateful and proud of the men and women of DHS who work so hard every day to execute uh, their missions and to protect the homeland. I really look forward to continuing to support them from the outside.
0: President Trump is cleaning house at the Department of Homeland Security.
2: Earlier this week, he announced on Twitter that he was replacing the secretary of the Department of Homeland Security, Kirstjen Nielsen.
0: Nielsen is being replaced temporarily by Kevin McAleenan. He's the current head of U.S. Customs and Border Protection.
2: So that position is now going to be empty.
0: And then on Monday, the president fired another high-profile DHS official the head of the U.S. Secret Service.
2: He also, last week, pulled the nomination of Ron Vitellio, who was under um, consideration to be the leader of Immigration and Customs Enforcement, ICE.
0: And this is all happening while DHS was just handed a major defeat in federal court.
2: Just on Monday, the president got a pretty harsh legal ruling against one of his main policies for trying to keep people out of the country, the so-called Remain in Mexico policy put in place by DHS, which basically stopped people who were seeking asylum from coming into the country. It told them that they had to stay in Mexico while their asylum claims were being processed. That was thrown out by a judge. My name is Tolu Olorunipa, and I cover the White House.
0: This week, that's meant covering the turbulence at DHS and how a lot of the president's actions can be explained by his desire to get even tougher on immigration.
2: Well, there's a lot of reporting that shows that President Trump wanted to shut down the border about two weeks ago. Secretary Nielsen was one of the people who told him that that would not only be difficult and not practical to do, but there would be some sort of legal restrictions that would make it difficult to shut down the border and that might not actually get the job done in terms of keeping illegal immigrants from coming over. It would stop a lot of legal migration and a lot of commerce from taking place. So by getting her out of the position, the president has the right to try to put someone in there who might be more willing to bend to his will and to follow policies and procedures that are a little bit more controversial this person would have to be confirmed by the Senate, which we know is not sort of a shoe-in. The president would have to put in someone who could get 50 votes in the Senate, and if he puts in someone who is just sort of a lackey, someone who is willing to go by his policies and follow his plans, even if they're not lawful, that might raise some red flags in the Senate, and it may be difficult for the President to get someone confirmed. but it is clear that he wanted to get rid of people who were telling him what he could not do on the border, telling him things that he did not want to hear about what 's practical and, and how difficult and complex the situation is because the President seems to want very simple solutions.
0: What are people in Congress saying about all of the upheaval within DHS?
2: Yeah, The president is starting to get some pushback from members of his own party in Congress. You're hearing from people like Senator Ron Johnson. He is concerned about the, the void and the turnover and the lack of leadership in the Department of Homeland Security. This is a national security agency that's supposed to be taking care of the security of the country and the fact that there are so many people Being fired, leaving, seems like there's a lot of chaos at the top of the ranks. This is something that's causing a lot of concern in Congress. You've also heard from Senator Grassley, who warned the president that he should not fire any more people from DHS. Very, very concerned Mm -hmm. from two standpoints. One, those are good public servants. Mm -hmm. You heard me say how long I've known some of them. Secondly, they are the intellectual basis Mm -hmm. for what the president wants to accomplish in immigration. He's concerned that there are news reports that there are other people who the president is looking to get rid of. And the fact that there has already been so much turnover, there are so many acting positions, so many people who are not Senate confirmed, but who are just there on a temporary basis is troubling to a a number of senators who want to play a part in this process.
0: But these are Republican senators who you would think would be somewhat aligned with Trump on the idea of getting tough on immigration. So why are they concerned?
2: Several of these senators actually support the president's ultimate goal of changing the immigration laws, making it more difficult for asylum seekers to try to come into to the country. But they think that the way the president is going about it is not producing the actual results that he wants. They realize that the president is impulsive and he wants things done very easily. Quickly and easily, but these are people who have worked on immigration law for years, if not decades, and they know that it's complicated. So they believe that the president is pushing out people who are just telling him the truth about the immigration system, that it's a complex system, that you can't change it and fix it overnight, and that some of the very drastic measures that he wants to take for simple solutions, would actually make the issue much more complicated and much more difficult to reach the end game that he wants. And a lot of these senators are trying to tell the president that by getting rid of people and by causing so much chaos that you are not actually solving the problem. You're just making it worse.
0: And I feel like we've seen that multiple times during the past couple of years, President Trump taking action on immigration, that ultimately – exacerbates the problem. Like, we see that with the immigration court system, that the process of moving people through asylum hearings is actually getting more and more difficult, which means more and more people have to stay in detention centers, which puts uh which put a bigger burden on the government and we also saw that with the child separation policy that putting this policy in place to deter people from coming over the border actually created a humanitarian crisis that became an even bigger problem for for the government and so it's hard to understand like why does he do these things that end up making the border crisis so much worse
2: this is a president that is looking for very simple solutions. He believes that all the people in Washington that have tried to solve this in the past are, are sort of thinking about it in too much of a complicated way, that he could just sort of come in and do things in a simple way.
3: You have a Democrat Congress that's obstructing. You talk about obstruction, the greatest obstruction anyone's ever seen. All they have to do is spend 20 minutes and they can fix this whole problem. We have the worst laws of any country, anywhere in the world, whether it's catch and release or or any one of them, I mean, I could name, I could sit here and name them, but if you did, if you got rid of catch and release, chain migration, uh, visa lottery, uh, you have to fix the asylum situation, it's ridiculous. You have people coming in claiming asylum. They're all reading exactly what the lawyer gives them.
2: This is the president who said that by pulling millions of dollars of aid from Central America, that he would be getting tough and sending a message to those countries to not allow their people to leave. But experts will tell you that if you take the aid away, that you make the situation on the ground in these countries that's already causing people to leave that much worse, and that you're just going to make the migration crisis even worse. So the president wants simple solutions. The experts around him and some of the people that he even appointed are telling him that if you do these things, it's going to make the problem worse. But he doesn't seem to want to hear that. And that's why you're seeing so many of these people being kicked out of their job sort of unceremoniously on Twitter, being told that they no longer have a position. And we'll have to wait and see who the president decides to put into a number of these positions, whether or not they're more willing to uh, follow the president's instincts and and do things that maybe make the problem worse, but because that's what the president wants to do, they'd be willing to sort of follow along with that.
0: I also wonder if that might be his political endgame, right? That, That maybe it's not about ultimately finding a solution, but creating a political fight over this and an appearance of being tough on immigration that plays well on the campaign trail.
2: The president is clearly trying to play to the base with a number of these different policy options, even if he's hearing from the people that he's put into the administration that these things are not going to help, they're not going to actually solve the problem. But politically, they look tough. Politically, going down to the border and saying our country is full looks tough.
3: Our system is full. We're not taking them anymore, Okay, Can't do it. You can't do it. You know, you can go up to a point, but we can't do it anymore
2: saying we're going to pull all of this money away from Central America. Foreign aid, which is already not very popular among the president's base, that's something that looks tough. Saying we're going to shut down the border, threatening to put tariffs on cars coming over to Mexico if Mexico doesn't solve the problem. All of these things are things that the president can go to the campaign trail and say, look at all of the things that I'm doing to try to solve this immigration crisis while you know the experts in Washington are talking about different types of complicated legislation, I'm doing things that that the American people can see are simple and tough. And he can take that to his voters and say, you know, put me back in there and reelect me because I am the only one willing to take the tough actions on immigration that no one else has been able to take. Uh, Now, he doesn't say that other people have not taken these actions because they're seen widely as counterproductive, but he says that he's doing it because he's the only president that's willing to push the envelope that far because he is uh, willing to take those extra steps to curb immigration that previous presidents have not been able to take.
0: Tolu Olurunipa covers the White House for The Post.
3: Speaking only for myself, I can tell you that if me being gay was a choice, it was a choice that was made far, far above my pay grade. And that's the thing I wish the Mike Pence's of the world would understand. That if you got a problem with who I am, your problem is not with me. Your quarrel, sir, is with my creator.
0: Who is Pete Buttigieg and why did you want to talk to him?
1: Pete Buttigieg is the mayor of South Bend, Indiana, where the University of Notre Dame is located. He has become just an exciting force in the Democratic presidential primary race. He's gotten a lot of attention in the last couple of weeks since he announced he was thinking about running. Pete Buttigieg is something of
0: an outlier in the field of Democrats trying to win the 2020 nomination. If elected, he'd be the youngest president and the first openly gay one. But that's not why religion reporter Sarah and Bailey wanted to talk to him.
1: I was particularly interested in him because of how he talked about religion. Specifically, he has talked about a revival among the religious left.
3: I think there's an opportunity for religion to be not so much used as a cudgel, but invoked as a way of calling us to higher values. And it's one of the reasons why, committed as I am to separation of church and state, I've not hesitated to bring it into the discussion. And I think we can have a healthier discussion than we've had in my lifetime around how some religious principles that uh, everyone can share or respect might guide us into a better place in our politics.
0: Sarah talked to Buttigieg on the phone last month, just after he placed third in a poll of Iowa voters, right behind frontrunners Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders. Buttigieg has made his faith a central part of his campaign. And that's at least in part to contrast himself from the Trump administration, which has seen consistently strong support from white evangelical voters.
3: My upbringing was not very religious. My my father had been a Jesuit early, in, or was on the uh, in seminary, I think, to become a Jesuit, and then uh, took some turns in the 60s that I never fully understood, but uh, emerged as a secular intellectual. My mother was more religious and and very attached to the Episcopal faith, but kind of from a distance uh, and didn't generally go to a lot of services. Um, So it was not a big part of our household life. And then it was really while I was a student in the UK that I became more drawn to the church and and started on the journey that led me to my church home here in South Bend in, in the Episcopal faith.
1: On a personal level, did you ever think, um, you know, being gay was sinful or find it difficult to reconcile with your faith?
3: I found it difficult to reconcile with organized religion.
0: For him, how does being gay intersect with his faith?
1: I mean, the way he says it is, I hope that the teachings about inclusion and love win over what I personally consider to be a handful of scriptures that reflect the moral expectations of the era in which they were recorded.
3: I certainly understand that many people believe this is uh, where the Christian faith has led them. And Mm -hmm. I want to make sure that as we try to welcome people, especially people of a certain generation who grew up in that faith tradition, as we try to welcome them onto the right side of history, that we need to recognize what an adjustment we're asking them to make.
1: So he's saying the Bible verses that people quote when they oppose homosexuality don't reflect that um, it was speaking to a particular time and a place not, that isn't necessarily applicable to today.
3: So of course I understand how people in good faith view issues around LGBT equality differently than I do. I just think that, uh, or I hope, that teachings about uh, inclusion and love uh, win out over what I personally consider to be a handful of scriptures that reflect, more than anything else, the moral expectations of the era in which they were recorded.
0: And I think that's interesting because traditionally, or or at least in recent history, Republicans have really had a lock on the idea that, that they are the party of faith, right? They are the party of religion. And if you are a person who cares a lot about religion, then the Republican Party is more comfortable sort of openly embracing that religious side of, of the party. But Pete Buttigieg wants to do that more with the Democrats, wants to bring that conversation about religion into the Democratic Party.
3: I do think it's unfortunate that um, that we've kind of lost touch with uh, a religious tradition that I think can help explain and relate our values. And mm-hmm. at least in my in my interpretation, it helps to root a lot of what it is we, we do believe in when it comes to protecting the sick and the stranger and the poor, uh, as well as skepticism of the wealthy and the powerful and the established, which... Uh, of course, the the New Testament is, is, is filled with.
1: How do you think a religious left should operate differently from the religious right in the past several decades? Are there strategies you think they should um, look at differently, or is it more policy specifics?
3: Well, I think the biggest difference is that a religious left has to be designed around inclusion, not exclusion. So you know, I think the, the religious right uh, was able to um, deepen some of its loyalties, but at the expense of uh, alienating uh, so many people by seeming to be hostile um, mm-hmm. to uh, to a lot of Americans. And I think that uh, you know, there's a chance to do that differently in whether you call it a religious left or just a more pluralistic political religion um, mm-hmm. or religious politics in our country.
1: So he does talk about a revival of the religious left. And he he acknowledges as well that the black church has been doing this for decades. They were very active during the civil rights period. And this is not a new idea, but he's talking about revving it up again.
0: That there's a real historical precedent for liberals embracing religion as part of liberal activism.
1: Exactly.
3: Some of it is issue by issue, just making sure as we all come in good faith to deal with an issue we care about, whether it's immigration reform or economic inequality, that we, we do so in ways that are um, that we're not afraid to articulate it in ways that are consistent with a lot of faith traditions that, that I think teach us to move in a certain direction. But I think on our side, we can do it in a way that's less dogmatic. We're not expecting mm-hmm. others to um, accept some imposition of our interpretation of our faith. We just want to remind people of faith why the same things that are being preached on Sunday apply to the policies that we're making on Monday morning.
0: Buttigieg is also comfortable talking about President Trump and Vice President Pence and the ways that they employ religion in their politics.
1: Yeah, so in our conversation, Buttigieg said that he thought Trump was elected kind of in bad faith.
3: You know, I think a lot of it obviously is centered around the debate on choice. And there are a lot of people who don't seem to mind that the president appears to be in this in bad faith, right? There, there's no evidence that he's anything but pro-choice deep down. But, you know, he's made a decision, a political decision, to shift gears to the point of calling for the imprisonment of women, because it would help him consolidate a base on the right that just wasn't there for him on the left.
1: Now, Trump has appointed Supreme Court justices who are are expected to not uphold abortion rights. So it depends, you know, how you look at it.
3: I do think it's strange, though, uh, you know, knowing that no matter where you are politically, uh, you know, gospel is so much about inclusion and decency and humility and care for the least among us, that a wealthy, powerful, chest-thumping, self-oriented, philandering figure like this can have any credibility at all among religious people.
1: He considers also Mike Pence to be questionable in his faith in that, you know, how could he be vice president for someone like Donald Trump?
3: His turn can only be explained in one of two ways. Either he abandoned his religious principles in order to become part of this campaign and administration, or he has some very strange Sense of destiny that God somehow wants this in order to get somewhere better, which, which I think does very little credit to God, but, but is the only other possible explanation.
1: He's saying he abandoned his religious principles in order to get into this administration. He started talking about the Pharisees in the Bible when discussing how Pence can justify his leadership in the Trump administration.
3: Do you, so I mean, the theme that yeah, is deeply ahead. woven through the New Testament is that of hypocrisy. And it's one I think a lot about. I try to do so with humility because, uh, you know, local government officials don't necessarily come off the best in the New Testament either. (laughs) But uh, there's an awful lot about Pharisees in there. And when you see someone who, especially somebody who has such a dogmatic take on faith as they bring it into public life, um, being willing to attach themselves to this administration for the purposes of gaining power. It is alarmingly resonant with some New Testament themes and not in a good way.
0: Sarah Pulliam Bailey is a religion reporter for The Post. Now, one more thing about a song called Old Town Road. Old Town Road is this song released by Lil Nas X, who is a 19-year-old rapper from Atlanta. He's brand new. my My name is Emily Yar, and I'm an entertainment reporter at The Post, and I write a lot about country music. And lately, Emily's been writing a lot about Old Town Road. It sort of immediately blew up on SoundCloud and YouTube. He didn't have a label behind him. He tagged them all as country. So when the song made its debut on the Billboard chart, it came in at 83 on the all-genre chart. But it just skyrocketed up to number 19 on the country chart. But eventually, Billboard said that they'd made a mistake by including the song on the country chart. They said that it didn't have enough traditional elements of contemporary country music. Instead, they moved the song to the R&B and hip-hop chart. Rolling Stone reported this, and people started to notice. And they were like, wait, why is the song taken off the chart? Because it actually kind of sounds a lot like a lot of modern country music. So Lil Nas X enlisted help from Billy Ray Cyrus, the country singer who got famous back in the 90s with Achy Breaky Heart. And still, Billboard hasn't agreed to let Old Town Road back on the country charts. A lot of people were calling out, you know, discrimination, that this was an artist of color. So, you know, maybe that was an element of why he was not welcome on the country charts.
1: You know, I grew up with a lot of, oh, black people don't do that. White people don't do that. That's white music. That's black music. Music. Bethany Butler also
0: writes about pop culture for The Post. And she says that the Old Town Road controversy reminds her of what it was like growing up as a biracial kid and being told what music to like.
1: You know, I think we're learning that the gatekeepers are typically white, typically male, not necessarily reflecting the communities, the backgrounds that Black artists come from. I honestly don't know the answer to this question, but what if Old Town Road had been made by... A white artist would it be on the country chart?
0: Now, Old Town Road is on top of Billboard's Hot 100 chart, meaning that it's the most popular song in the U.S. Emily says that that puts Billboard in a tough spot. Now that it is the number one song in the country and there's a country singer on it, they have to figure out what to do. Emily Yar and Bethany Butler cover pop culture for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. You can learn more about the stories in today's show at PostReports.com, follow me on Twitter, at Martine Powers, or share your thoughts on this episode with the hashtag PostReports. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.